2: I'm Laura Landon. Today, we'll be peering behind the curtains, inside the world of politics. Our guest is Graham Steele, author of What I Learned About Politics, a frank and sometimes scathing account of why modern political systems are definitely not of the people, by the people, and for the people. Based on his 12 years as an elected Canadian politician in the province of Nova Scotia, Steele writes that the goal of getting re-elected drives everything politicians do. He points out that the rules of the political game include putting yourself in the spotlight, fighting hard to take credit, and even harder to avoid blame. And he writes that although politicians make a lot of noise serving as members of legislative bodies, The real decisions are made elsewhere, shrouded in secrecy. Graham Steele was first elected to the Nova Scotia legislature in 2001 as a member of the New Democratic Party. His party, often called the NDP for short, is Canada's centre-left Social Democratic Party. It was elected for the first time in Nova Scotia in 2009, led by Darrell Dexter, who became Premier, the province's highest political post. He appointed Graham Steele to serve as Minister of Finance. The subtitle of Steele's book, Inside the Rise and Collapse of Nova Scotia's NDP government, refers to the party's defeat in the election of 2013. During this interview, Graham Steele takes us on a political tour as he explains how the political power game works. The tour begins inside Historic Province House, home of the Nova Scotia Legislature in Halifax. The interviewer is journalist
1: Bruce Wark. Well, Graham Steele, thank you for joining us here at the Nova Scotia Legislature. It's a pleasure. Let's begin by talking about the building we're in. It's a historic building, and the legislature, the Nova Scotia legislature, has been meeting in it since February 1819, 196 years coming up in a couple of weeks. Um, what's the building, this building, mean to you? It is
0: a an amazing workplace it, it is almost 200 years old it's a it's a gem of a building you know it, it's you know a bit run down in parts and uh, as you would expect with the building that old but it, it it has an atmosphere about it that is indescribable unless you're actually in it you, when you walk through the door you know you've entered someplace really special and it, it's got a kind of character that no new building could ever have. This is a relatively small legislature, 51 members uh, come together from all over Nova Scotia for approximately three months a year, typically two months in the spring, one month in the fall, and they, they get together to do um, the people's business or at least that's what's supposed to happen
1: (laughs) and as your book points out it, it isn't necessarily what the ordinary members do do when they're here at the legislature
0: yeah, the the, the realization that that I came to, and I assume all members come to sooner or later, is that there's very little that goes on inside this building that matters, and I I that's not just unique to Nova Scotia Court. That's true of any assembly in Canada, in the United States, around the uh, the, the democratic world. Uh, and it all came to um, to a head that the idea that the legislature is really just empty theater came to a head here in Nova Scotia in the spring of 2013 when one of the most senior members uh, in, of the legislature just didn't bother showing up at all. He went on vacation instead. And when reporters said to him, well, why didn't you come to the legislature? He said, that's not what I'm elected for. He said, I'm elected to serve my constituents. Uh, You know, I'm on the phone with them every day. I, I can email with them every day. And they don't elect me to go sit in the legislature because nothing that I could do there matters. None of it makes one bit of difference. Now, I tell that story in the book because... Uh, what he said is true, and every member of the Assembly knows that it's true. The difference was that finally we had somebody uh, saying it out loud. And remember, this was somebody who'd sat in the legislature for 20 years at the time. He was one of the two most senior members in the House, and he said, what's the point of even attending?
1: When I listen to the media or read in the newspaper, it seems to me that the members are debating things, they're voting on legislation, uh, they're, they're discussing issues from their constituency as well. So I, I get the impression from the media that there's a lot happening here. Right,
0: and of course the, the press gallery is covering what's going on in the building because a lot is happening, all of the things that you talked about. I mean, in order for a law to pass or in order for a budget to pass, it has to go through the formal stages in the legislature. But the point that I'm making in my book is a little bit of a different one, and that is that everything that happens in here is predetermined. So in my 15 years in politics, that's 12 years as an elected member, three years as a staff person, I don't remember one single time, not once in 15 years, that anybody's mind was changed because of what was said in the House. The members come over here, they already know how they're going to vote before they get here, and nothing that is said or done within this building uh, will change their mind the governing is going on governing is happening the the government of a province like Nova Scotia is a, a 10 billion dollar a year operation it's multifaceted health education roads justice social services everything the point of my book is it's not happening in this building governing is going on in office buildings around province house around the legislature But it's all happening behind closed doors in places that reporters and citizens aren't allowed to go.
1: And in fact, you tell me that uh, as a former cabinet minister, former finance minister, that uh, we're going to get to go to the cabinet room today where I assume a lot of decisions are made.
0: Yeah. During my time in government, um, I spent an incredible amount of time in that room, in the cabinet room, both... In cabinet meetings, but even more so in cabinet committee meetings, like the Treasury Board. Now, the Treasury Board is a committee of five cabinet ministers, and that's where the real decisions are are made about what government will spend its money on. Um, so, a, a lot of time spent in that room, and of course, it's a secret; it's confidential. Uh, no, no reporters allowed in the room. Uh, anything that goes on in that room is considered to be a secret. And, but that's only one place that decisions are made. Decisions may be made in the Premier's office, may be made in a Minister's office, may be made in the Government Caucus room, as well as in the Cabinet room. And all of those places where the real discussion is happening, where the real decisions are being made, are closed to the public. That can't be healthy for the state of our democracy.
1: Now, after the 2009 election, you were appointed Minister of Finance, which is an important uh, post, to say the least, one of the most important, aside from the leader, the Premier himself. How did you feel when you were told that you had been chosen for uh, to be the Minister of Finance in a province, we should quickly add, that doesn't have a lot of resources it's considered one of Canada's have not provinces
0: yeah I, I mean of course i was proud and pleased i'd been a member of the opposition uh for 8 years and so it was it was time i mean you can you can only spend so many years in opposition. I had already said to my wife that if we didn't win the two thousand and nine election that uh, that would be my last election because uh, i didn't want to be somebody who was in opposition their whole life. You know be part of the best opposition Nova Scotia ever had. If you get into politics because you do want to be part of the government. One of the unfortunate parts of Canadian government, I think is that the the party with the most seats ends up with one hundred percent of the power and we very much exclude uh... the opposition from any serious role in lawmaking or budget making when i became the minister of finance though and i had been my party's finance critic for seven years so i thought i knew my way around finances uh, I realized uh, when I became finance minister that I knew maybe 10% of what I needed to know. There's so much more to it. And to me, that's a symptom of the fact that all the the debate, the charade, the theater that goes on in in the legislature is very superficial, very, very superficial. And when you actually have to govern, when you actually have to make decisions that matter... Um, there's so much more to it, so many things to take into consideration. You know, Technical details, policy details, financial details. Um, so it was a pretty steep learning, cur- learning curve. Even for somebody like me, who'd been in the legislature for eight years, finance critic for seven years, and then some of my cabinet colleagues um, had been in the legislature a lot less time than me. Some were, were new MLAs, just elected for the first time, and then they were in cabinet. A Provincial government is such a big, complex, far-reaching organization, and yet we entrust it to a bunch of people who maybe know very, very little about how government actually operates.
1: Okay, well, that's sort of an introduction to things here, um, and some pessimism in your book, too. I wonder if we could now go into the legislative chamber itself where you sat for a number of years as an opposition member and then as Minister of Finance in the government. Okay, let's go. You're
2: listening to an interview with Graham Steele, author of What I Learned About Politics. The interviewer is Bruce Wark.
1: So here we are in the chamber. It's a round room, and uh, the legislature has been meeting here for nearly 200 years. Um, Graham Steele, what, what did it feel like to be in this room?
0: It's pretty incredible when you walk in here for the first time. I've been in the gallery, and let, let me just paint the picture a little bit. So it's it's it's. Um it, the reaction a lot of people have when they walk into this room for the first time is how small it is, because this is an almost 200-year-old building. This is not like the vast uh, legislative buildings and enormous chambers that you get in some of the western provinces, like uh, Alberta or Manitoba. This is a relatively small building and a small chamber. It's roughly in the shape of a horseshoe. Um, the government sits to the right side of the chamber the, the 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 presiding officer the speaker sits in the middle to the speaker's right is the government and to the speaker's left is the opposition it's a, the, the it's a two two stories tall and around the second floor around the edge is a public gallery where any member of the public can sit and watch. Of course, most of the time the public gallery is empty uh, because frankly most of what goes on in here is in a great deal of interest to the general public. But more importantly, I think there's a verbatim transcript so citizens can read every single word that's said in this chamber, and there is gavel to gavel uh television coverage. One of the modifications of this old chamber are the television cameras, which are hidden in recesses in the wall. Um, so, so it's not obvious. The people controlling the cameras are, uh, are not visible from the floor. Uh, so citizens can, can very much uh, uh, you know, follow what's going on in this chamber. But as a matter of fact, most days the gallery is empty, uh, except sometimes for staff of MLAs themselves.
1: And there's a small press gallery, too, that was added in the 1840s, I was reading.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting that there is a section of the gallery that's simply referred to as the press gallery, and the only difference is that there's a table in front so that they have a place to put their notebooks. But, you know, it's interesting. As a matter of fact, it's quite rare for reporters to sit here because the proceedings are mostly long-winded nonsense um, and not of the slightest bit of importance the reporters are typically talking to people elsewhere in the building or they are downstairs in the basement they may have an ear out to what's happening watching on a television monitor but it's actually quite rare for a reporter to be sitting in the chamber in the press gallery because frankly Uh, it's not a good use of their time, considering that most of what goes on in here is empty theatre.
1: Well, you tell a story in your book, an anecdote in your book about giving, I think it was your first speech after you were elected, and uh, what happened? You stopped and, and, and wanted the speaker to do something.
0: So I, I had just been elected. I was young and energetic, and I had just spent a campaign, as Canadian politicians do, knocking on doors, talking to lots of people. I had lots of stories and insights uh, that I wanted to share that I picked up along the campaign trail. So I rose to give my very first speech in the House. And, you know, for anybody who's elected, this is an, uh, an important moment, a significant moment, and then, as I was giving my speech, talking about some a particular local issue involving a local high school, I looked around and I realized as I was speaking that nobody, absolutely nobody in the chamber was listening they were talking to each other they were you know dealing with correspondence whatever they were doing at the desk but as i looked around on my side on the other side not one single person in the chamber was listening now in any other gathering of grown-ups this would be shockingly bad behavior where else can we go where somebody's standing talking and every single person in the room is ignoring them but that that is normal behavior you learn in the legislature that is absolutely normal behavior And fundamentally, that happens because what the members are saying does not matter. It doesn't change anybody's mind. It doesn't change a vote. It's something that has to be gone through uh, before the proceedings close and the members can go home and do the real work, Uh, which for almost every member is the constituency work, dealing with the daily needs of the people who elected them, not with examining laws, not with examining budgets. um, That That's just not something that they find a good use of their
1: time. I I think you appealed to the speaker, didn't you, Uh, to to ask people to listen. And what happened then?
0: Well, what I said was... I, You know, I have something valuable here to say. I, I, I was sharing something about the, the local high school, which was closed because of it was a sick school. It was making people sick, so the school was closed, and it was a real issue in the community about what was going to happen to the property. And, and the speaker's reply to me was simply, well, this is fairly normal around here, and it's not as bad as it could be, um, so carry on. And so I, I carried on, and a lesson I learned that day and Something that I had to remember it many times in the future is when you're speaking in the legislature, you're really speaking to the transcript. You're really speaking to anybody who wants to review your words later. You're certainly not speaking to the people in the chamber because, frankly, they don't care.
1: Well, we're standing in the middle. Maybe we should go over to sit where you sat when you were in opposition, not in government, and we can talk about that role, and then we'll cross over to sit where you sat as finance minister.
0: So when I was first elected to the House, I sat in the very back corner of the opposition side because there is a hierarchy here in the House, and the the leaders sit in the front row of, of, of their respective sides. And they are typically surrounded by their senior, or their most trusted advisors. Now, as uh, as an MLA, uh, a new MLA, I was uh, as the rookie, I sat in the back corner because that's frankly where most m- most rookies start. So I'm going to walk yes. over. He- I'm going to walk <laughs> over here. Here, you can pull up a chair. Okay. Here, yeah. And.
1: And, uh, yeah, well, it is the very back row off in the corner.
0: I'm going to sit in, roughly in the spot where I started out. Now, it's not the exact spot because, you know, things do change in here. The current speaker of the house um, uses a wheelchair, and so the the entire chamber had to be modified in order to set up a ramp so that he could, he could get to the raised platform where the speaker uh, sits. So the that that ramp that wheelchair ramp um, covers the spot where my where my first desk was so you know there is progress there is there is some recognition that that even in this old building uh, things need to change uh,
1: but we're as close to my original spot as we can get and as a member of the opposition what uh... well your book talks about games that politicians play um, what game does the opposition play what's its role
0: Hmm. the uh, there is a political culture which uh, grabs hold of people very quickly and when i when i look back on my time in politics i look quite ruefully at how quickly and easily i accepted the political culture and in our system of governments the opposition Has frankly, pretty easy role. First of all, they have no responsibility. Um, uh, They have no responsibility for governing at all. So frankly, they can propose anything. And it doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to be logical. It doesn't have to be doable. It doesn't have to be affordable. They can simply propose anything because they're not at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what they say, they'll have no impact on governing. They don't have to make all the pieces fit together and say, well, if you do this, you can't afford to do that, Um, things things like that. So what you do in opposition essentially is, work as, first of all, work as hard as you can to promote yourself by getting in the news, uh, saying and doing whatever you have to do. And sometimes the more outrageous the proposal, the more likely you are to get in the news. So first and foremost, get in the news. And second, just by and large, just being against whatever it is the government is doing. Um, because you don't get any attention in the news media by agreeing with the government. So you have to be as op- as adversarial as possible and as loud as possible. Those, those are the basic lessons you learn in opposition. And if you don't do those things, you're simply not going to uh, succeed. You're not going to get anywhere. You're not going to get any attention.
1: Uh, one thing that happens in here um, that does get a lot of attention, from the media at least, is the, is the question period, the period in which the opposition members get to question the cabinet ministers on the government side. Um, what, what's that like when you're in opposition, this question period?
0: Yeah, question period gets a great deal of attention. Um, main, uh, the main reason is not because of the substance of it or anything in particular gets done. It's that it is the moment that where the theatre is the sharpest. It's, it's the most dramatic because you have... Um, what are supposed to be short, sharp questions from the opposition and then short, sharp answers from the government. It's, it's where the drama of the place is, is most obvious. But, of course, much of it is purely uh, rhetorical on both sides. So my my memory of uh, question period in opposition is it's actually quite a lot of fun. It's you're, you, you know you get to stand up, you get to have attention. When you're on the when you're on the government side, the back especially for the backbenchers, you don't stand up, you don't speak. You're largely silent in the chamber. But everybody in the opposition gets a turn. You get the full of attention of a cabinet minister. You've got the full attention of the house, the reporters. If they pay attention to anything in the chamber, they're paying attention to question period. Uh, frankly it's it 's a lot of fun. You can just throw questions rhetorical questions at the government and it doesn 't matter whether the questions get answered or not um, you 've succeeded in 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 getting getting attention that day question period. Has become pure theater. Nobody is seriously looking for real information. Nobody is supplying real answers. It's just, it's become a lot of rhetorical give and take. And the longer I was in the legislature, the less I liked it. So after I had resigned as uh, finance minister and became a government backbencher, I more or less stopped coming two-question period because they couldn't stand it. It was so empty, so rhetorical, uh, so devoid of any substance that they couldn't even stand to be in the room when it was going on.
1: Yeah, if I remember a quote in your book, you say that this is the most dysfunctional workplace you've ever been in.
0: Well, it's terrifically dysfunctional. It's it's almost unbelievable. You You get people who barely understand the topic they're talking about, standing up and... At talking about it anyway, it, you know, the, the empty rhetoric, the, the pure theater of it all. No serious business is getting done in this chamber. All the governing is happening in office buildings around the legislature. And so because so little that happens in here actually matters, it leads to terrifically bad behavior on the part of members, the shouting, the insults, the heckling, uh, it's just, if people acted like this in their workplace or at their home, they would get fired from their workplace and they, their families would break up. And But it's because so little that happens in this chamber matters that it just leads to this kind of bad behavior. And if there were more substance here, the behavior would be a lot better. If If it actually mattered what was going on in here, people would... Uh, would listen more, behave better. And, you know, politicians are good people. They're some of the best, smartest, most community-minded people that I know. But when they get into this chamber where nothing matters, it just leads to some really bad behaviour.
1: Now, that said, uh, the NDP under Daryl Dexter, in opposition, was able to get some... was able to... To, through the use of rhetoric and sharp questioning to get the government to do certain things that may, in the end, have made the NDP more attractive to voters. Um, I'm thinking of uh, the campaign for the seniors' healthcare. Yeah, you know, but
0: the thing is about that campaign is it really um, struck a chord with people, but that campaign would have uh, unfolded just as it did and would have been just successful as it was if not a word about it had ever been uttered in this chamber. That was a very carefully thought out, carefully planned campaign. Well,
1: what, what was it aimed to yeah, get?
0: The, the basic idea of it was that we have a publicly funded health care system, but for residents of, uh, of nursing homes, of long-term care facilities, uh, they had to pay a substantial portion of their own health care. It's one of the relatively few pace- places where people had to pay for their own health care. And Daryl Dexter NDP said that's wrong, that has to stop. In a publicly funded system, uh, the people in those homes should not be expected to bear such a large portion of their health care costs. And he, uh, Daryl in particular, sort of drove that issue, he drove it for a couple of years until the public response was so strongly in favor that the government eventually said, yeah, you're right, we have to do this. Now, uh, although it was a conservative government that actually made the necessary changes because daryl had been uh... driving this campaign for a couple of years uh, they did all the work and daryl and the ndp got all the credit but it's not because of what happened in this chamber It's it, that that campaign was done through meetings leaflets uh, television and radio appearances interviews uh, all kinds of uh, all kinds of external events, of course, the campaign was carried into the chamber as well, but it, it, it became just one small locus for a much broader campaign
1: well um, graham we 've talked about your role in opposition, the role of the opposition. Why don't we go across the floor now to where power uh, (laughs) resides, the government side of the House?
0: Okay, so in the 2009 election, we moved up to 45% of the vote, and that meant that we had about two-thirds of the seats, and it meant we had 100% of the power. So we took the short walk, you know, just about from where we were sitting before to my new seat as the Minister of Finance, maybe maybe 10 yards but you go from having no authority no power to having a great deal of authority you're having a
1: lot of fun in opposition but no no power really
0: you have none at all no no responsibility no accountability uh which which is fun because you don't have to explain how you would make it all fit together but once you're on the government side you 're running a ten billion dollar a year operation you 're running a healthcare care system you 're running an education system you 're running an enormous road network you 're running a billion dollar a year social services system you 're running a justice system and many other things beside and when you 're running the government, it all has to make sense. The arithmetic has to add up the public policy has to work so you have you go from having zero responsibility zero accountability on the opposition side to having 100% of the power, but also 100% of the accountability on the government side.
1: So what's it like uh, in question period when you're on this side? You're sitting in your old seat now as finance minister. I'm sitting next to you in the Premier's chair. What's it like when those members opposite in opposition are firing questions designed to make you look bad?
0: Well, it's... um Because I had eight years in opposition, I knew what it was like to be on the other side. But I remember sitting over here on the government side, and now for the first time in my political career, I knew all the facts. I had all the briefings. I knew what was going on. I knew all the considerations, all the stakeholders. And it's complicated. You can't be running a $10 billion-a-year provincial government Uh, with simplistic ideas. Um, Simplistic ideas don't work. And so I would sit here on the government side and I would think two things. I would think, oh my goodness, how simplistic and rhetorical and empty the questions were. That was my first thought. And my second thought was, oh my goodness, I used to do exactly the same thing when I was over on that side of the house. And I'm sure the ministers that I was questioning we're thinking how uh... empty and rhetorical um, and lacking in substance uh... my questions were it just underlined for me the fact that there was a lot of noise in the house but very very little substance
1: okay, okay now you've talked in rather stark terms about um, what happens in here and how irrelevant so much of it is um, what could be done to make things better, to make it so that the system worked actually more democratically, where decisions were made more openly?
0: Whatever is not functioning well within our legislature, the answer is not simple. There's a reason why uh, the elected members don't put a lot of effort into what is going on in this chamber, and that's because they all believe. Um, fundamentally that their re-election depends on the work they do back in the constituency, not the work that's done here. Uh, They also know that all substantial decisions are made elsewhere and that nothing that is done or said in this chamber matters. So if we're going to make this chamber and what happens here more relevant, then we have to make it the place where decisions are made and that's not an easy thing it's not a simple thing to do but the 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 beginning of an answer has to start with what citizens expect their mlas to do when they're elected um for example i don't think most citizens realize that 95 percent of what an mla does day in and day out is constituency work back in the constituency and when we 're in the voting booth i don 't think that 's what people are thinking of. you know who 's going to put on the best uh, neighborhood barbecue? Uh, who's the one who's going to do the best casework um, to help individual citizens? I think we imagine that we're electing somebody who spends their time in this chamber, but this is a tiny proportion of the members time and even less of their of their interest. Another factor, and this is a conclusion that I came to you know at the end was that frankly political parties do more harm than good they 're not all bad they they do provide a certain structure uh, stability predictability to our political system, but they are self perpetuating institutions, and their survival and their and winning Victory becomes the be all and the end all, and a lot of what a lot of the meaninglessness in this chamber can be traced back to the fact that people um, are part of a team, and the team has already decided what it's going to do before it gets here. Now I don't know what it would take to get people to be a little bit more independent minded. Uh, for it to be a little bit easier for independents to be elected. I mean, the last time a, an independent was elected, the Nova Scotia legislature was 26 years ago. It's very difficult to be elected as an independent. It's
1: and that's a person who doesn't belong to a party, just...
0: Yeah, an independent is somebody who does not have a party affiliation. So to even to even have a hope of getting into this chamber you have to be a member of a party and the party has certain expectations and rules. And I think it's partly because almost all MLAs are overwhelmed when they get here. Overwhelmed because they really have no idea what what the job involves. That they're only too happy to follow the the dictates or the wishes of the party, and part of the answer has to involve changing that. But exactly how is is not clear to me.
1: You have suggested a kind of unity government that would that would be more uh, representative of uh, of different points of view.
0: Yeah, that, that's kind of that that part is something that's not in my book and is a little bit more particular to the circumstances in which Nova Scotia finds itself now, we, we recently had a commission on what I would call the economic development prospects for Nova Scotia, which s- suggested that our economic state was uh, serious enough that we really need to consider the peacetime equivalent of a wartime coalition government. When I first heard that idea, I thought that was kind of um, crazy. But I've, I've come around to that, and I think there is a possibility of reaching across party lines, even something as simple as the premier inviting into his or her cabinet members from other parties, which is in in our political culture unheard of and unthinkable. but maybe it's time we started thinking unthinkable thoughts. Now, I, I don't know if there's a great, a big future for that kind of thing, but but at this particular stage in Nova Scotia's development, uh, maybe we need, to, we, we need to be thinking about that kind of uh, breaking down uh, party lines. Cause I do think party lines, at the end of the day, are more destructive than they are constructive.
1: Now, one final thing I'll ask you on this. There are times uh, in Canadian politics and Canadian legislatures, both the federal in Ottawa and the, the uh, legislatures in the provincial capitals when the opposition parties do get more of a say and that's when the government doesn't have the majority of the seats. Um, so that that's a kind of a situation in which the opposition can push the government uh, and say we're going to vote against you and defeat you and force an election if you don't do certain things.
0: Yeah, you know, the idea of coalition governments, you know, formal or informal, um, is is something with which Canadian politicians don't have a great deal of experience. Our our system tends to produce majority governments. And in Nova Scotia these days, you can typically win a majority with, with only about 40% of the vote. And there are, like everything in politics, there's pros and cons with having more coalition governments for example if we change to a system of proportional representation it would be extremely rare for anybody to get a majority of the votes and therefore a majority of the seats the advantages are that it does force uh, people in positions of authority to listen to think to compromise to persuade but There is a downside to it, and that is that people then become motivated by what is necessary to put a coalition together or to keep it together, and that's not necessarily the same thing as what's in the public interest. Um, So I, I don't subscribe to some of the ideas that people have about... How to fix our democracy, you know proportional representation or you know coalition governments or or that kind of thing. I mean fundamentally, uh, politics will change when voters stop electing people to their to their provincial assembly, to the national parliament who operate according to what I call in the book the Rules of the game or what or what you might also call the political culture. Um, which, does n- which is incompatible with good governance, uh, incompatible with the public interest, because it puts the party's interest ahead of everything else.
2: You are listening to an interview with Graham Steele, author of What I Learned About Politics, Inside the Rise and Collapse of Nova Scotia's NDP Government. The interviewer is Bruce Wark. As the interview progressed, the two walked out of the historic province house in Halifax, where the Legislative Assembly has met for nearly 200 years, across the street to a modern office building called One Government Place. That's where the Nova Scotia Cabinet meets to make government decisions away from the public gaze. Cabinet ministers swear oaths of secrecy and are not allowed to talk about what happens during Cabinet meetings. We pick up the interview as Graham Steele walks into the cabinet room
0: so we walk through the door we're now we're now in the cabinet room it's it's a largest room it's but it's not any different than a a medium to large size um, hotel meeting room. it is windowless I will emphasize that um, there are paintings on the wall from the government's uh, Art collection. The government actually holds quite a large collection of art by Nova Scotia artists, and they will rotate some of the paintings around. Uh, you know, they're fairly nondescript. Some of them are recognizable as Nova Scotia scenes, some of, them, some of them not. Uh, there's in, dominating the room is a very large uh, black table. And of course, there's there's black seats, fairly modern, uh, comfortable seats around the table. There's probably about uh, 20 seats altogether. So that's where the cabinet sits. Um, and then behind at the head behind the uh, the head of the table where the premier sits are two tables with three chairs each, and that's where the senior staff sit sit. So during a typical cabinet meeting, there will be the cabinet ministers, plus uh, about half a dozen uh, senior staff, senior civil servants and political staff, and then other civil servants are called in if and when required.
1: Now, the Premier sits at the head of the table, and uh, you, you talk in your book quite a bit about how much power... The Premier, um, let's, let's we can move that way. Sure. Yeah,
0: let's walk over to uh, to where the Premier sits. So it is a feature of modern Canadian government that the Premier or Prime Minister has a great deal of authority, an, an enormous amount of authority. And the interesting thing is, of course, that the, the, the office of Premier or Prime Minister is hardly mentioned in the Canadian Constitution. This evolution of authority... Uh, is something that's happened gradually over time, so that now the the premier, or prime minister, leading a majority government, is far more powerful than, say, uh, the president of the United States, or or, or really any any monarch, because uh, essentially the premier decides, or the premier can decide if he or she chooses to what the government is going to do on any given issue and uh, everybody else will typically fall into line uh, fairly quickly. It's um, And why is that? Why, why does the Premier have so much authority? Well, first of all, um, it's because it is the Premier alone who chooses who's in cabinet. And in modern government, uh, every politician, of my experience, dreams of being in cabinet. They want to be in cabinet. If they're not in cabinet, they will do whatever it takes to be in cabinet. If they are in cabinet, they'll do whatever it takes to stay in cabinet. And in order for that to happen, you have to be in the, in the good books of the premier, uh, the the Premier um, decides who all the Deputy Ministers are. That is the most senior civil servant in every department. Now, technically, that's a decision of the entire Cabinet, but the way things have evolved, the Premier has taken that as as their sole authority. So they present the names of Deputy Ministers to the Cabinet for rubber stamping. And I, uh, I there was one case where I said to the Premier, to my Premier, are you sure? I'm not sure about this person. And he just shrugged his shoulders and carried on because he'd already made up his mind and typically, typically nobody uh, raises any objection to that. The premier is also uh, the person on whom the focus of the most recent election campaign has has been and, and for better or for worse, is a great deal of attention paid to premiers in the television age you know, the media, they need a picture, they need, they need a symbol of a party. And how do you symbolize a party better than the leader? You know, they're, they're the ones who go to the, the televised debates. And so when somebody's party has won an election, it is uh, very often the case that a lot of that success will be attributed to the premier or, or the prime minister. And that, that authority political authority brings with it a lot of ability to say to people well you're here because of me so there's no question that for example leading up to the 2009 election daryl dexter was extremely popular in order to get people to smile uh, all i had to do was say i know daryl dexter and and so when we won the election and a lot of people who were elected who wouldn't maybe didn't necessarily expect to be elected, he he could say, in essence, well, you're here because of me. Now here's what I want you to do. So for all of these reasons and more, uh, premiers in our modern system of government, um, they, they are the closest thing we have to absolute rulers. And then they surround themselves with their own staff, who um, who, anybody will tell you that in Ottawa these days, any decision of, of any import at all is made out of the prime minister's office. And so the premiers and prime ministers and their staffs essentially run the government. And that's a bit of a shock when you finally become a cabinet minister and you realize that you may not have nearly as much influence over government policy and government decision-making as you expected, that that there's still another set of rooms where the real decisions are being made.
1: Now, you tell a story in your book, um, you were finance minister, which is, I would say, probably the next most important post to the Premier's post in modern governments. And so you were not a junior minister by any means, a very senior, important figure in the Cabinet. And yet you tell a story in your book. Uh, could you remind me what, what the issue was? You were trying, you had an idea, uh, you wanted a change. You couldn't see the Premier about it, but a member of his staff approached him at a conference when he was meeting other Premiers in Ontario. It, there was
0: an issue involving um, in involving telecommunications uh, service uh, uh, the previous government to us had implemented a program of essentially subsidizing the extension of high speed internet uh, across the province to one hundred percent of the province which is not easy in a province that has some significantly rural areas and some difficult geography and One of the companies had done a lot of work but hadn't come near the the 100%. And so our members in that coverage area were starting to act essentially like the complaints department for this telecommunications company. When people were unhappy with the company, they would call their political representative because the government was so closely associated with this particular program. And so eventually I had come to the conclusion that we needed to be serious and to look serious about um, taking legal action to hold this company to the commitment that it had made. But I, I knew that would be a big deal, especially in the year before an election. Uh, and so I wanted to make sure that I had the, the green light from the Premier before I did it. But it's actually, I actually spent very little time with the Premier. I rarely saw him outside of Cabinet meetings. He was hard to get hold of. Outside of cabinet meetings, and besides, a cabinet meeting when there's so many other things on the agenda is not a time to sit down and and uh, try to brief the premier and take him through an issue and get him to uh, to give you the green light. It just it wasn't the right form anyway. So, working through his most senior staff member, his chief of staff, I tried and tried and tried to get him to give me the green light to uh, to prepare the ground for this legal action, and I just I just couldn't get it. It wasn't that he was saying no; uh, I just couldn't get an answer at all. And eventually, after many many months, I, the chief of staff spoke to him at a premier's conference, you know, in another province, and the only answer I got back was no. You know, no, we're not doing it. I didn't hear any explanation. I didn't get to brief the premier myself. I don't know, you know, whether both sides were fairly presented. I I, I just don't know what he was told, and I don't know what he said back. But the only answer I got back I thought was uh, quite unsatisfactory uh, because everybody, all of our MLAs in that coverage area supported uh, taking legal action, Uh, Everybody was for it, uh, but I could not get the green light uh, from the premier. And without that green light, it just didn't happen. So we ended up doing nothing.
1: Now, you were uh, something that is very rare in Nova Scotia, a one-term majority government. Um, I don't think that's been more than 100 years before another majority government has, has been defeated after only one term in office. Um, what happened to the NDP uh, that got such a big majority in 2009 and then in the election of 2000, I th- guess, 13, was uh, defeated soundly, reduced to third-party status?
0: Yeah, one, one of the things that I, I think, well, I try to point out to people is that I, it would be a mistake to see this as a story about Nova Scotia or about the NDP. Uh, we weren't uh, particularly better than governments uh, before us, but we weren't especially worse either. Um, I like to remind people that in our neighbouring province, the one that is most like us economically... Uh, New Brunswick, they've just finished tossing out their second one-term government in a row. Uh, Quebec, uh, at roughly the same time, tossed out a government after a single term, and the Premier there lost her own seat, just as our Premier lost his uh, seat in the 2013 debacle. Uh, Meanwhile, over Newfoundland and Labrador, um, somebody who, who was in the Premier's chair was pushed out by her own party, Um, at roughly the same time before she had a chance to lead the party into an election. So there's all of this stuff going on at this end of the country, and I I think it's significant. There there are different possible explanations for why the NDP was thrown out after a single term uh, in office, and I think it will take time... For, for there to be a consensus emerging around which is the, the best explanation. Uh, there's one prominent pollster here in town who says it's really simple. The economy was terrible and uh, people were not feeling better off at the end of our four years, uh, and so they decided to try somebody else. And, And I find that quite persuasive, especially because that would explain why similar things were going on in Quebec and New Brunswick and Newfoundland and Labrador at exactly the same time. Now, you could say that, you know, other things that we made mistakes and people were fed up with it, but that kind of thing... I, like I said, I, sure, we made m- mistakes. Uh, every government makes mistakes. How can you be running a $10 billion a year operation uh, of such complexity and not make mistakes? Of course we made mistakes. But was it enough to throw us out? Uh, does that mean we were a lot worse than previous governments? Well, there are some people, particularly um, partisans from other parties, who would like that to be the prevailing story. Uh, I don't buy it myself. The economy was terrible when we came into office. The economy was terrible when it came time for another election. And Nova Scotians decided they needed to change.
1: Now, I, I do want to ask you a couple of questions about budget making and the myths that you, you talk about uh, in your book. Um, as Finance Minister, you would be very aware of those myths. First of all, what are myths that uh, get spread around about the way uh, provinces uh, make budgets, and uh, how did you respond to them as Minister of Finance? Well,
0: The fundamental problem with the way we talk about budgets is that we talk about taxes and services as if they're two different things that have nothing to do with each other. So typically, people on the right wing will talk about taxes as if they're a standalone item, um, and they won't talk about the services that are paid for with those taxes. So if we cut taxes... You should have a serious discussion about what corresponding services you're no longer going to offer, but the right wing doesn't want to do that. Now, by the same token, the left wing, on the whole, wants to talk about services and all the great, new, better things that government could do, but doesn't want to associate that with any discussion about who's going to pay for it. Or if they do, it's a totally unrealistic discussion about where the money might come from. So when I was finance minister, I said my fundamental job was simply to get Nova Scotians talking about taxes and services in the same sentence. They are the same thing. The only reason we have taxes is to provide services. The only way we can provide services is to have taxes. And it didn't much matter to me, frankly, about where that discussion ended as long as there was a recognition that the two things have to move together at the end of my three years as finance minister and our four-year government i'm not sure that i moved the needle very far on that discussion because now today i still see people talking about taxes and services as if they're uh two totally different things and they are the same thing
1: well if we cut taxes maybe we'll stimulate the economy and uh, that way we can pay for services by economic growth
0: Right, and that—that that is, there's there's a number of uh, of myths out there, and one of them is cut taxes to stimulate growth, and it, it's just nonsense. I mean, it, it's based on bad economics, it's based on bad history, uh, it. But it's one of those things that sounds appealing, and so it, part of the reason it's appealing is because it sounds like nobody needs to get hurt. You know, if only you do such and such, then everything will be better. Well, it's nonsense, of course, and. Uh, Here in Nova Scotia, we can just point to our neighbouring province, New Brunswick, which cut taxes uh, around 2009, and their economy is in terrible shape, and not only is their economy still in bad shape, but... Their finances are now in terrible shape, whereas the the NDP in Nova Scotia made a different choice. We said, well, in order to try to bring things closer to balance, we need to raise taxes. So we raised the sales tax, which was uh, thoroughly unpopular. New Brunswick saw how unpopular that was and said, well, we're not going to raise taxes. But what they've chosen to do is rack up big deficits, piling on debt so that this year New Brunswick has passed us in terms of uh, debt per capita. And that's just a different choice that they made, and I'm not at all convinced that they made the better choice.
1: Now, in the end, having uh, served all these years in politics and in the cabinet and written your book, um, how do you feel about the whole th- I mean, do you ever get depressed? uh because some of the things you're saying are not necessarily what are taught in civics and schools and uh, and not taught you know about our democratic system and the way it works. How do you, How does it make you feel to yeah. to have gone through everything and then had time to to go over it again and write a book about it?
0: If I thought there was no hope, if I was deeply pessimistic, I wouldn't have even bothered writing the book. To me, the act of writing the book is itself um, a sign of hope, of optimism that things can be better. Now, I'm not going to say it's going to be easy. There's a reason why Politicians, including myself, act the way that they do. They are responding to the environment that's around them. And the reason why politicians follow these rules of the game that I talk about in the book are because they work. They work to win re-election. They work to win votes. And it will change as soon as following the rules of the game stop working. To me, change starts with being frank being realistic about what is actually going on so this book is about here's how politics actually works here's what's going on here's how the decisions are being made here's who's uh, making those decisions because I, because so much happens behind closed doors in the back rooms i don't think citizens truly understand how their government works and so what i want to do in the book first and foremost is to say to people here's how it all works now what we all do about it How we try to change it, that's a different question entirely. And I will be frank that I don't know what the answer is. I finished my 15 years in politics knowing that government is not working for citizens. And I believe that the book has sold as well as it has because it's striking a chord with many, many people uh, in Nova Scotia, but also well beyond Nova Scotia, who believe the same thing. They know that government is not working for them. They just haven't been quite been able to put their finger on it. And my book helps them to identify exactly what the issue is. But in the end, and I say this in the book, the answer does not lie with the politicians. It's not the politicians who are going to change this. It's the engaged citizen who is able to better recognize um, the more destructive elements of the political culture when they see them and to say to a politician who's engaging in this kind of behavior, stop. That's not going to get us anywhere. Let's get back to the real issue. Let's let's talk about good public policy. And we, once there are enough citizens who do that, the culture will start to change. But I'm, I, I don't pretend that that's a quick or simple process, but that's that's where the answer lies is in with the engaged citizen.
1: Thank you, Graham Steele. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much.
2: You've been listening to an interview with Graham Steele, author of What I Learned About Politics, Inside the Rise and Collapse of Nova Scotia's NDP government. The interviewer was Bruce Wark. I'm Laura Landon. See you next time on the New Books Network.